You're listening to Rhodey Radio, Rhode Island Library Radio Online. I'm Jessica Diavanza, Community Engagement Librarian at Barrington Public Library in Barrington, Rhode Island. This episode is a special bonus episode to our earlier interview with the 2020 Reading Across Rhode Island author Elizabeth Rush of Rising, Dispatches from the New American Shore. What you are about to hear is a reading by Elizabeth of the opening chapter of Rising, titled The Password. In addition, we have a second bonus episode recorded by Cranston Public Library and Living Literature, a Rhode Island-based collective of artists and educators performing Rising in the form of Reader's Theater. You can find the author interview and the episode featuring Living Literature's performance of Rising in your podcast feed. I thought I'd read a significant chunk of the first chapter of the book called The Password, and it takes place in Jacobs Point, Rhode Island, which many of you as Rhode Island listeners may be quite familiar with. And it is the chapter that starts the book and really sets the tone for the entirety of what's about to come. So this is The Password. I've lived in Rhode Island for one week when I set out to explore the nearest tidal marsh. The landscape I know will be the first to show signs of sea level rise. I bike across the Washington Bridge, past the East Providence wastewater treatment plant, the Dairy Bee, and the repurposed railway station through Barrington to Jacobs Point. As expected, out along the Narragansett Bay, a line of dead trees holds the horizon. Some have tapering trunks and branches that fork and split. Bark peels from their bodies in thick husks. The local Audubon ecologist tells me that they are black tupelo. I roll the word in my mouth, tupelo, and cannot put it down. Tupelo becomes part of the constellation of ideas and physical objects that I use to draw up my navigational chart. I aim toward Tupelo. Words can shuttle us around in time and space from New England to Old England, from Rhode Island, back over 2,000 years to when the Wampanoag and Narragansett first harvested shellfish from these tide-washed shoals, to a time when language tangibly connected the physical world and the world on the page and in our conversations. Take Tupelo, for instance. It is Native American in origin and comes from the Creek Itol and Opila, which, when smashed together, means swamp tree. Built into the very name of this plant is a love of soaking, of periodically soaking in water. Word of Tupelo's once told marsh waders what kind of topography to expect and also where to find relatively high ground. A month or two before I witnessed my first dead Tupelo and right before I packed up my apartment in Brooklyn and moved north, I found a scrap of language in an essay on Alzheimer's and stuck it to my computer monitor, thinking it might serve some future purpose. It read, sometimes a key arrives before the lock. 
which I understood as a reminder to pay attention to my surroundings, that hidden in plain sight, I might discover the key I did not yet know I need, but that will help me cross an important threshold somewhere down the line. When I see that stand of tupelos, I instinctually lodge their name in my mind, storing it for a future I do not yet understand. Chance has sent me to Providence, but the move feels deeply fortuitous. Here, I think I will become immersed in the subject matter that's begun to obsess me, the rate at which the ocean is rising. No state, save Maryland and only by a hair, ranks higher in the ratio of coastline to overall acreage. It's no surprise then that 15% of Rhode Island is classified as wetlands. And of that 15%, Roughly an eighth is tidal, both one of the most nimble ecosystems in the world and one of the most imperiled. Over the past 200 years, Rhode Island lost over 50% of its tidal marshes to the filling and diking that come with development. Today, the remaining fields of black needle rush and cordgrass are beginning to disappear thanks to higher tides and stronger storms. In the mornings, I ride down the path lining the Narragansett Bay to Jacob's Point just to look at that stand of dead trees. I secure my bike to a wooden fence and walk across, across the width of the marsh to shoot black and white photographs of their ghostly silhouettes. The trees bare limbs twine and reach, a testimony to the energy once spent searching for light. I picture the, the shade they used to cast and the bank swallows awash in that balm, diving like synchronized swimmers, one after another from the lowest branches. Or at least that is how I imagine it once was, before the ice sheets started sloughing into the sea, before the shoreline started to change its shape, before the tupelos along the East Bay started to die. My first summer in Rhode Island, I returned to the marsh often. One morning, someone else is there. When he and I cross paths, I ask as nonchalantly as possible if he knows why these tupelo are all dead. I'm trying to find out whether he can see what I've learned to see, that the precious balance between salt water and fresh that once defined this tidal wetland has been upset. No, the man says, binoculars jangling around his neck. I'm sorry. I'll be the first to admit that when I started to come to Jacob's Point, I couldn't tell the difference between black tupelo and black locusts, between needle rush and cord grass. I would learn their names only after I realized the ways in which their letters on my lips might point towards or away from incredible loss. Then I became fascinated because like Descartes, I believe that language can lessen the distance between humans and the world of which we are a part. I believe it can foster interspecies intimacy and as a result, care. If, as Robin Wall Kimmerer suggests in her essay on the power of identifying all living beings with personal pronouns, naming is the beginning of justice, then saying Tupelo takes me one step closer to recognizing these trees as kin 
and endowing their flesh with the same inalienable rights we humans hold. That's because sometime during the last half century, these Tupelo's tap roots started to suck up more salt water than they had in the past. They were stunned and stunted. Then they stopped growing. The sea kept working its way into the aquifer. Storms got stronger and dumped more standing water onto marshes and Tupelo's all along the East Coast died. Now they no longer bathe the edges of Jacob's Point in shade. The green coins, their leaves are gone. And a recent bird census carried out in Rhode Island's East Bay suggests that the bank swallows are going too. I tell the stranger all of this, the sentences unspooling fast like the outgoing tide, when he shifts from foot to foot, anxious to break away. He has, he tells me, never heard of the Tupelo tree. Instead of the luscious rasp of growth on growth and the electric trill of a songbird in flight, out here at the farthest end of Jacob's Point, we're surrounded by the ticking sound of unprecedented heat. Above us, the Tupelo's empty oracular branches groan. The oldest living black tupelo in the United States sprouted 650 years ago. That means its first buds burst while the plague was busy killing off approximately one third of Europe. Now it's the tupelo's turn to succumb in great numbers. And the red knots and the whooping cranes and the salt marsh sparrows of the 1400 endangered or threatened species in the United States, over half are wetlands dependent. Five times in the history of Earth, nearly all life has winked out. The planet undergoing a series of changes so massive that the overwhelming majority of living species died. These great extinctions are so exceptional, they even have a catchy name, the Big Five. Today, seven out of 10 scientists believe that we're in the middle of the six. But there's one thing that distinguishes those past die-offs from the one we're currently constructing. Never before have humans been there to tell the tale. The language we use to narrate our experience in the world can awaken in us the knowledge that transformation is both necessary and ongoing. When we say the word Tupelo, we begin to see both the trees themselves and the very particular ecology they once depended upon are at least where they are rooted, gone. Sometimes the key arrives before the lock. Now I'm thinking, sometimes the password arrives before the impasse. These words, when spoken or written down, might grant us entry into a previously unimaginable awareness that the coast and all the living beings on it are changing radically. One day, I decide to visit the Audubon Environmental Education Center at Jacobs Point. It's noon and I'm red-faced, my shins sliced by bull and cat briar from spending my mornings batting around those dead Tupelo. The blue-haired volunteer behind the desk looks at me as though I'm mad for having been in the marshes instead of in the air conditioning, looking at dioramas of the marshes. Can you tell me about Jacob's point and those trees at the far end that are dying, I ask. 
She suggests I walk through the interpretive exhibit. She even waives the $5 fee. I snake through five rooms where the rhythmic lick of water melting into mud flats sounds from a pair of Sony speakers. The mallards don't move because they've been stuffed with wool. The box turtles swim tight circles in a tiny tank at the back of a room without windows. I emerge from a paper mache cave, a cave in a marsh, and repeat my question. This time she refers me to Cameron McCormick, the groundskeeper, and the person most likely to know what is actually happening at Jacob's Point. Cameron doesn't have voicemail, so I leave a message with the center's secretary. Two days later, he calls me and we meet at the path down to the marsh the following morning. His eyes are wild and attentive, filled with flecks of cornflower and amber. He wears carpenter's work boots that's come, that have come undone and a poorly tie-dyed Audubon t-shirt, clearly abandoned by a summer camper. Cameron has a degree in ecology and has been managing Jacob's Point for the last five years. It's a process that's become increasingly difficult as the system's inputs, temperature, saltwater levels, tidal highs and lows all shift. He makes a plan, the saltwater inundates a new portion of the marsh and the entire ecosystem changes. Together, we make a beeline for the shore where Cameron delivers a plastic box full of fishing nets to a group of excited eight-year-olds who are about to catch fiddler crabs. Next, we walk toward the stand of Tupelo's at first, we stick to the high ground. Then, abandoning the idea of keeping our feet dry, we leave the path behind and sink into the soaked land. Jacob's Point, like all tidal marshes, contains three distinct zones, low marsh, high marsh, and an upland area at its farthest inland edge. Every day, the low marsh is covered in salt water twice and also uncovered twice. The high marsh slips beneath the salt only in storms. Which is to say, along the point's seaward edge, the plants and animals have adapted to live with the tides. Well, upland, the opposite, of tr the opposite is true. Think of a tidal marsh as, like all wetlands, a transitional region where distinctions blur and the entirely wet world morphs into the almost entirely dry one. It is a liminal ribbon an in-between, a spit of land at the edge of things where the governing laws change four times a day. Tidal marshes are frontiers. And as Gary Schneider says, a frontier is a burning edge, a frazzled, a strange market zone between two utterly different worlds. To pass from one to the other is to cross an almost imperceptible but important boundary the place where fresh water meets the brine of the sea. As we walk toward the Tupelos, we're slowly grading downward, crossing the threshold between sweet water and salt. Cameron tells me what he sees and also what he does not. These weren't here five years ago, he says, clomping through a bunch of coarse-toothed marsh elders that have taken over a section of the point that's become suddenly rich and saline. I expect more are on their way, but it's hard to keep up with. The knee-high shrubs have pushed out a stand of Phragmites, their arrival making Cameron's job easier in this small acre. But the equilibrium they've brought is not destined to last. 
In the past, when sea levels dropped, the marsh dropped down too. And when they rose, the marsh rose with them. Cameron says, as we work our way past the two below toward the Ragosa studded bank. If you were to take an aerial time-lapse photo of the process he's describing, it would look as if Jacob's point and the ocean were moving in and out together. The way desire follows the desired. The swirling migratory dance is primarily the result of two different physical and ecological processes. The first is called accretion. As salt water flows in and out of the marsh, vegetation traps some of the sediments suspended in it. And as those sediments settle, the marsh gradually gains elevation, Cameron tells me. Accretion results in the building up of low-lying land. It's nature's nimble backup. If accretion makes marsh migration possible, then rhizomes power the retreat. Dense, arterial, and interconnected, these specialized root systems run below ground, giving wetlands their shape. In the past, as sea levels rose and the marsh gained sediment, rhizomes would pull away from the increased salinity while simultaneously sending out new shoots, often uphill, in search of the kind of water that suited them best. As these plant communities moved up and in, the fauna that depended upon them moved too. While the physical location of the salt marsh might change, its defining features would not. But now that sea levels are rising faster than they have in the last 28 centuries, the ocean and the tidal marsh are falling out of sequence. In the ocean state and along the rest of the Atlantic coast of North America, the rate of the rise is significantly higher than the global average. Here, accretion is already being outpaced, which means that the land that once was built up slowly is starting to slip beneath the sea's surface. On top of that, if the marsh's upland slope abuts some piece of human infrastructure, a road, or as is the case at Jacobs Point, an old railway line, as the rhizomes pull away, there's nowhere else less salty for them to thrust their spindly roots. The marsh is squeezed between the sea and the hard stop we built along its upland edge. And like the Tupelo, it too begins to drown in place. Maybe if the old Bristol line weren't there, Jacob's Point would stand a chance. But then again, maybe not. It's so hard to tell with accretion rates being what they are, Cameron says. Then he adds, it's a terrifying and wonderful time to do the work that I do. That fall, I begin to suffer from an acute form of anxiety. Nameless storms so large, they leave my house lightless and full of water spin into my dreams. My faith in natural processes and the intricate systems of reciprocity that I was raised to believe keep nature from tilting out of balance is lost. Gnawing uncertainty takes its place. I wonder if there's a threshold between immersing myself in my subject matter and drowning in it, and whether I've crossed that line. At night, unprecedented storm surges rearrange the furniture and my family lineage. The commonly held notion that what has happened will happen again, that there are no new stories, this idea becomes fat with water, fully saturated. Then it too slips beneath the sea's dark surface. 
Whenever I can, I pull away from my computer screen and ride back out to Jacob's Point. There I wander in a landscape we do not yet have a name for, a marsh inundated by too much of the very thing that shaped it. I read about the disappearance of tree frogs in Panama, the drought scraping across Kenya, the heat waves killing thousands in Paris and Andhra Pradesh and Chicago and Dhaka and Sao Paulo. I've written about communities affected by sea level rise, but my life has seemed so removed, so buffered from those events. At Jacob's point, I am finally glimpsing the hem of the specter's dressing gown. The tupelo, the dead tupelo that line the edge of this disappearing marshland are my Delphi, my portal, my proof, the stone I pick up and drop into my pocket to remember. I see them and know that the erosion of species, of land, and if we are not careful of the very words we use to name the plants and animals that are disappearing is not a political lever or a fever dream. I see them and remember that those who live on the margins of our society are the most vulnerable and that the story of species vanishing is repeating itself in nearly every borderland. In a hundred years, none of these trees will be here. No object thick with pitch to make the mind recollect. And if we do not call them by their names, we will lose not only the trees themselves, but all trace of their having ever been. Looking at the bare tupelo at the farthest edge of Jacob's Point, I'm reminded of something John Bear Mitchell said when my students asked him how the Penobscot people of Maine have responded to centuries of environmental change. Our ceremonies and language still include the caribou, even though they don't live here anymore. The change is in how we acknowledge them. His response surprised my students. He seemed to be saying, learn the names now, and you will at least be able to preserve what is being threatened in our collective memory, if not in the physical world. His faith in language clearly eclipsed their own. And then there is the pleasure of it. I like my excursions best when I am alone, waking early to ride to a slender little marsh that most overlook. The wild blackberries ripe from summer heat, seemingly fruiting just for me. The black needle rush dried in logarithmic spirals and patches of salt marsh cord grass that look like jack straws and blowdowns in an aging forest, both bearing the delicate trace of the last outgoing tide. Beyond the stand of Tupelo, the marsh still hums with the low-grade sound of honeybees hunting in loose strife. The ospreys cast their shadows over cicadas and lamb's quarters and bayberry. This tiny journey into the marsh feels like a grand field trip. Mud snails wrestle in the ebb tide, a great egret hunches at the far horizon, scanning for mama jugs, and the sea balm rushes through the tree of heaven. I walk out only a fifth of a mile farther than most people go, and yet there's so much happening. So many unexpected gifts and self-made surprises. Dropping down, I arrive at the water's edge. I pull on my bathing suit and dive into the bay, but not before stubbing my toe on a barnacle-covered rock submerged just beneath a 
the surface. I care intensely about being here, about coming back alone and often, and I don't really understand why. Sometimes the key arrives before the lock. Sometimes the password arrives before the impasse. Speak it and enter a world transformed by salt and blue. Say, Tupelo. Thank you for listening. Today's podcast episode is a production of Barrington Public Library. Our theme music is Pure Water by Maydon. Roadie Radio is a project of the Office of Library and Information Services and made possible through a grant from the Rhode Island Council for the Humanities. This episode is brought to you by our wonderful and supportive Friends of Barrington Public Library. Join the friends and support the programs you love. Learn more at friendsofthebarringtonlibrary.org. You're listening to Rhodey Radio, Rhode Island Library Radio Online. When you're listening to Rhodey Radio, you know you're listening to something good. You're listening to Rhodey Radio. When you're listening to Rhodey Radio, you know you're listening to something good. Hello, Rhodey Radio listeners. I hope you've had a chance now to pour yourself a cup of tea or a mug of coffee. And join me, Jessica Diavanza, Community Engagement Librarian at Barrington Public Library, as we share tea time from across the pond with New York Times bestselling author Catherine Elto. In this interview, she starts off by telling us about the inspiration behind her latest book, Writing Wild, which was published in June of 2020 by Timber Press. In addition to Writing Wild, Catherine is the author of the New York Times bestselling book, The Natural World of Winnie the Pooh. The inspiration to write the book came from her children, who were three, six, and nine when their family first moved to England in 2007. They began walking the ancient public footpaths around their new home, and within a week had walked more than 30 miles together. Creative nonfiction is a popular genre for both writers and readers. It stands apart from the traditional journalistic style in the way the author inserts themselves into the narrative. Think of Michael Pollan's The Omnivore's Dilemma or The Library Book by Susan Orleans. I asked Catherine what she loves most about writing creative nonfiction. Many Rhode Islanders will recognize the final profile in Writing Wild as Rhode Island's own author, Elizabeth Rush, and her book, Rising, Dispatches from the New American Shore. I asked Catherine what prompted her to write the concluding essay for Writing Wild about Elizabeth and how we should think of her in relationship to the other women featured in the book. On behalf of Barrington Public Library, I thank you for listening. If you made it to the end of this episode and want to learn more about Writing Wild, Catherine Alto will join us virtually from her home in Devon, England for an author talk and Q&A 
on Thursday, February 25th, 2021 at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. You can learn more and register to get the Zoom link at barringtonlibrary.org. Today's theme music is Spring Migration and Fur by Chad Crouch, along with A Bird Revealing the Unknown to the Sky by Michael Byron. Special thanks to Royalty Free Sound Archive at soundbible.com. Rhodey Radio is a project of the Office of Library and Information Services and is supported by a grant from the Rhode Island Council for the Humanities. Stop. <sighs> Start. You're listening to Rhodey Radio, Rhode Island Library Radio Online. When you're listening to Rhodey Radio, you know you're listening to something good. Hello, Rhodey Radio listeners. I hope you've had a chance now to pour yourself a cup of tea or a mug of coffee and join me, Jessica Diavanza, Community Engagement Librarian at Barrington Public Library, as we share tea time from across the pond with New York Times bestselling author Catherine Alto. In this interview, she starts off by telling us about the inspiration behind her latest book, Writing Wild, which was published in June of 2020 by Timber Press. Writing Wild is filled with profiles of women writing about the natural world, some historical and some contemporary. I asked Catherine about the amount of research involved behind the writing of the book and how she was able to make them all come alive so vividly on the page. During our time together, I asked Catherine to read a passage from Writing Wild. Here, she shares the opening of her essay on Mary Oliver. This is New York Times bestselling author Catherine Alto reading from her latest book, Writing Wild, Women, Poets, Ramblers, and Mavericks Who Shape How We See the Natural World. I invite you to put the kettle on and listen in. This is New York Times bestselling author Catherine Alto reading from her latest book, Writing Wild, Women, Poets, Ramblers, and Mavericks who shape how we see the natural world. I invite you to put the kettle on and listen in. This is New York Times bestselling author Catherine Alto, reading from her latest book, Writing Wild, Women, Poets, Ramblers, and Mavericks, who shape how we see the natural world. I invite you to put the kettle on and listen in. This is New York Times bestselling author Catherine Alto reading from her latest book, Writing Wild, Women, Poets, Ramblers, and Mavericks Who Shaped How We See the Natural World. I invite you to put the kettle on and listen in. In a bicycle-only lane separated from the east-westbound traffic of Interstate 195, I observed the flow of early morning commuters along this expanse of the Washington Bridge. I used to be one of them, zipping by at 55 or 60 miles per hour in my Honda Fit, racing to my job as a public librarian. In a world overtaken by a pandemic, the hours my foot spooned the gas pedal feels like another lifetime. I push a bit faster now, working the muscles in my glutes and topping out somewhere around nine miles per hour. At 7.37 a.m., I make an unexpected pit stop. 
On a spit of land known as Cranberry Island, the sight of a freighter pulls my attention towards the bay. Its hull a mustard yellow, its bridge as tall as the five vertically stacked shipping containers perched on its deck. In the foreground, framed by a beak of salty granite and the white blossoms of scentless mock orange, I snap a photo and text my dad. Look what I found on my first bike ride to work. At 1,200 square miles of shallow lowland, Rhode Island's highest point is an 811-foot hill. Deemed the tiniest of U.S. states and the second most densely populated after New Jersey, I measure the ocean state as 30 by 60, 30 minutes across and 60 minutes wide, by car that is. Rhode Islanders know this, but to anyone outside of Little Rhodey, as it's affectionately called, our state is portrayed as merely a yardstick. Journalists look to us when their readers seek clarity of scale. Like finding Waldo in a picture book, I begin to search my home state. I begin. I begin to find my home state in news articles, like. Okay, fix that. Iceberg twice the size of Rhode Island breaks off Antarctica. Or, the area burned is larger than Rhode Island. To readers, this makes the sheer size of recent catastrophes less abstract. To residents of the Lilliputian of states, like me, it's an alarm bell. My entire state is floating somewhere in the southern hemisphere, a charred mass soaked in saline. Rhode Island, due to its size and topography, is uniquely suited to bike commuting. And yet, I don't know many people who do it. I know of friends or coworkers and some family who ride a bike for charity events, for weekend leisure, for a good sweat at an indoor cycling class, and for teaching their kids how to ride a bike. I would place myself in almost all of these categories. But what was holding me back from riding my bike to work? To cycle to the grocery store, to pedal for coffee with friends. Back when we used to attend in-person meetings, I sat around a conference table with two dozen librarians. We were cheek to jowl, as my colleague Doug likes to say. At some point in my neighborly conversation with the librarian to my right elbow, she shared, I'm car free, like a person says, I'm gluten free or I'm child-free. I silently wondered how anyone working in a professional job outside of a major city serviced by a proper rail system could honestly live this way. I walk to work, she said matter-of-factly. When I saw her months later at a regional conference, we sat together in the hotel lobby. She popped a carob spirulina nugget in her mouth and told me she'd rode Amtrak to get here. Your employer will reimburse you for public transit? I asked. A few days later, I handed in my expense report and received back 58 cents for every mile of my greenhouse gas emissions. In the year of a once in a century pandemic, it feels like the time to start doing things I've always wanted to do. Things that scare me, like convincing my husband we should get rid of one of our two cars. It felt necessary. We could toss aside the shovel and bring in a backhoe to quickly cap our student debt hole. I'd considered this idea a fantasy, one introduced to us by Mr. Money Mustache, 
a 30-something-year-old retired blogger. In a YouTube video, we watch him ride his bike through a Canadian town while his voice over while his voiceover shares a tip for living a debt-free life. Get rid of your car. It reminded me of the No Impact Man project, a family's year-long attempt to make zero impact on the environment while living in New York City. The project's main character is Colin Beaven, a self-described bicycle nut. As a childless millennial couple, we live shackled to cheap rent in a second floor apartment. It's held together by duct tape and the sharp wheeze of life heard a couple times a week from our landlord in the apartment below. In California in 1985, you could buy a house for $120,000. In 2020, that is the combined amount we owe the federal government for one graduate degree and two baccalaureate degrees. The federal government sets our retirement age at 67, Scott and I are reminded of this during the moments when I force us to review our financial statements. There, among the black on white, are words like target date fund, a term undefined in all the 18 years I've spent in a classroom. With our birth dates in the early 1980s, we sit squarely on the retirement target date of the climate crisis bullseye, often cited as the year 2050. I've started to warm to the untraditional idea of carrying our house on our backs like a hermit. At night before bed, I watch the glow from Scott's phone as he dwells in the possibilities found within the van life subreddit. In the light of each dawn, we perch somewhere in the void of the American dream of our parents and grandparents and the uncertainty of a future in the Anthropocene. That sentence doesn't make, that sentence needs clarifying. Standing proud is my 10-year-old bike. Manufactured by Giant, it is considered a comfort bike with its roomy saddle and upright seating. I hoist my L.L. Bean highlighter yellow grocery panniers and place the center of the bag over the rack that acts as a roof to my rear wheel. Once secure, I place a second bag, this one with my laptop, over the first and use a bungee cord to keep it in place. I think of Scott, who cut my 15-mile bike ride to work in half by giving me a ride to this spot on the sidewalk. I picture him in our car, barreling north on Interstate 95 in his 22-mile race to work. I snap the buckle on my helmet. I like that it has a wide streak of the same highlighter yellow to match my grocery panniers. Walking the bike across India Street to talk Watton, I take one final look back at the collar of Narragansett Bay. The East Bay bike path begins here. The bike path starts off with a switchback. It's the most efficient way to climb 40 feet over the steady flow of the Seekonk River. I can do it, I tell myself. The weight inside my grocery panniers causes a slight wobble. And I think of the day when I first rode in a racing single. My coach, Amy, waved off my suggestion that I try the school bus yellow pontoons that other rowers placed on their oars like pool floaties. They are known as the training wheels, and she thought I'd be better off without them. While I bobbed left to right in a boat the width of a giant's pencil, Amy shouted over the low groan of her motorboat, 
It's like riding a bike. You need momentum to stay upright. Just row. I make what feels like reasonably good time. At 7.52 a.m., I see the trim of juniper on poppy that coat the outside of the former Providence Warren and Bristol Line train depot, now Borealis Coffee Company. The bike path I've traveled is the same route. Author Elizabeth Rush pedals in the opening essay of her Pulitzer Prize-nominated book, Rising, Dispatches from the New American Shore. I'd spotted a few dead trees between here and my photo break. Are they Tupelo's? That paragraph needs a little something about getting to work. By late fall, I start reading about the history of women on bikes. The recently published book Revolutions, How Women Changed the World on Two Wheels by Hannah Ross introduces me to Dervla Murphy. In 1963, this Irish woman in her early 30s cycled alone on a six-month journey from Dunkirk to Delhi. This 3,000-mile trip took her across Europe, through Iran and Afghanistan, over the Himalayas, to Pakistan, and then India. She rode a three-speed bike plagued by endless punctured tires and shared her adventures in Full Tilt, Ireland to India with a Bicycle, published in 1965. You go, girl. A man wearing an oversized blue jacket stands on the sidewalk of Elmwood Ave. He cheers me on as if a spectator in the Women's World Tour. I choose to ride this extra-wide street on my way to and from Providence when I stop looking to Google Maps for the quickest route. From my apartment in the neighboring city of Cranston, the Washington Secondary bike path ends behind an office park and a big box shopping plaza somewhere along the city line. An abandoned shopping cart and a few empty bottles of Jack Daniels marks the spot. From there, the most direct way north is a dicey route through the underpass of the 610 connector. It's known as a state highway and splits the west side in two, like a jagged tear through the heart of the city. At the Niantic Ave on-ramp, Cranston Street pulses forth from here. A raw cityscape of cash-for-gold signs, mom-and-pop stores with their wares spilling out onto the sidewalk, and the beat of Latin music plays from the newly erected outdoor patio of a Mexican restaurant. In this narrow artery, I feel outnumbered as the cars close in around me. Despite the extra pedal strokes, I've begun to seek alternate streets, setting aside the imagined pile of twisted metal, bent spokes, and me, now a body on the pavement. Back at home, I try out some new language on Scott. I'm car free. You sound pretentious. I can't say we only have one car. People will think we're poor. Who cares what other people think? Months later, I read an article from a local environmental journalist quoting a lawmaker. We need to make riding a bike to work sexy. I think of my new little black dress, a romper, really, made of recycled polyester and spandex. It's moisture wicking, quick drying, and most importantly offers SPF 50 sun protection. It's become my summer cycling uniform on the days I ride to work. I ask myself the same question each time I hop in the saddle. Would you ride your bike if you had a second car? 
Scott works on Saturdays, which leaves me these options for running my errands. The bike, the city bus, or a hybrid of both. It's deflating to admit the truth. No, I would not choose to ride my bike over driving. It's hard to change the very basic components of what makes life easy. And why bother? It's warm in my car in winter and cool in the summer. I'm a busy person. On my weekly ride to the farmer's market, I journey past too many discarded face masks. The faded blue and white reminds me of a not-so-distant time when wearing one was unthinkable. I tell myself this is going to take time. One day, I will answer that question with a yes. Maybe this is a process because I have time twice in those two sentences. I just need to take up space. As a four foot, 11 inch tall female in an extra small women's bike frame, I'm not used to taking up much space, but on my city streets in Rhode Island, this is exactly what I do. Flash the drivers with the strobe of my rear bike light Make them see my highlighter yellow grocery paneers and the matching streak along my helmet. Sit upright, tall and proud. Reach out all two feet of my left arm to signal the turn. Give a wave to every driver who stops for me to make that left turn or when I have to cross a street. Look a driver, a pedestrian or a fellow cyclist in the eye and smile or nod. Let them know I'm here and it's our road to share.